0: We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on P.A. Books, the editors of James Buchanan and the Coming of the Civil War, John Quist and Michael Berkner. Our guests are John Quist and Michael Berkner, and they are the editors of this book, James Buchanan and the Coming of the Civil War. John Quist, for someone watching this who knows almost nothing about James Buchanan, what should they know? Well, he
1: was the uh, 15th president of the United States. Uh, He was uh, essentially the president of the United States when the Civil War began. Secession occurred uh, during the uh, last uh, few months of his presidency. Uh, He's also the only president from Pennsylvania. Michael Berkner, you want to add anything?
2: Well, obviously, uh, as an extension of that, he was our only bachelor president. Uh, he was a person who served his country in many different capacities and probably would not have become president if he hadn't uh, basically worked well and effectively in the various roles he took on for a number of presidents, including minister to England, secretary of state, served in the House, served in the Senate. So he really had quite a resume, and uh, that needs to be factored in.
0: Elected in 1856. What was the 1856 election like? What was going on in the country at the time?
2: Well, uh,
1: 1856 election, there were three candidates for the uh, presidency. Uh, Buchanan received the Democratic nomination. Uh, The uh, new Republican Party nominated John C. Fremont uh... and uh... the uh, Whigs and uh... no nothings uh, nominated former president millard fillmore it was uh... uh nationally a three-way race uh, but it was a two-way race in the north between buchanan and fremont a two-way race in the south between fillmore and buchanan and and buchanan won the election by winning uh, almost every southern states in a, in a smattering of northern states
2: yeah i'd add to that that you, if you need To know something about 56, aside from what John said, it was a a time of great intensity in the country, uh, probably much more so than in the previous several elections, because uh, a number of southerners, the the so-called fire eaters, uh, said that if a sectional candidate like Fremont was elected, uh, they'd secede. Uh, Now how serious they were and how much support they had is debatable, but it was a concern. Uh, and Buchanan portrayed himself uh, as the candidate uh, who would quell a sectional agitation, who was uh, a national candidate as opposed to Fremont. Uh, and that, of course, helped get him over the finish line.
0: It says in the book that he was um, a conservative within his party. What did that mean at the time to be a conservative within the Democratic Party?
2: Well, I was going to start by saying that there are really two different angles you can play on this. One is a conservative, uh, in, in terms of strict construction of the Constitution right? And then there's the, the issue which overlaps that, which is conservative on issues of slavery. Uh, so there are a number of Democrats in the North who are popular sovereignty Democrats and there are a number of Democrats in the North who simply want to move away from the slavery issue entirely. Uh, Buchanan tend to be conservative in that he wanted to, the slavery issue to be on the back burner. He would come up with different ideas about how to deal with it, one of which was to just draw uh, the line of uh, the Missouri Compromise all the way to Pacific and let's be done with it. Let's let slavery be okay below that line and let's not have slavery above it uh, but I think that uh, in general he was a conservative and and in terms of the slavery issue he was considered a dough face a northern man with southern principles
1: and he had his his political base uh, ultimately while president was not Pennsylvania was really uh, the states of the uh, the south the slaveholding states and uh, he he aimed to keep uh, that wing of the party uh, pleased with him he wasn 't always successful in keeping uh, uh, southerners happy and uh, but he was even less successful in keeping northerners happy. The issue him.
2: of course is was how much of this was pragmatic and how much of this is his temperament and his outlook. John's exactly right that that's where his his uh, emphasis was on making sure the South was satisfied, at least until the very end of his presidency. Um, but it was because he was uh, a person who had most of his friends from the South, including uh, William R. King, who was probably his closest compatriot in the Senate, who was from Alabama. Uh, he was a person who was comfortable with Southerners in the messes that he lived in in, the, in Washington, D.C., comfortable with their point of view, and he sort of embodied a, a very genial notion, uh, a, a polite fiction about what slavery was all about, if you will, on the basis of his intercourse with these people. Uh, he was not really realistic about what slavery was.
0: But before we go too far, I, I'll probably be reading uh, snippets from this book, mm-hmm. but can you explain what this book is? Because if I read quotes out of the book, it's not necessarily your words.
1: No, it's not. Uh, the, uh, the book is a collection of essays uh, based on the work of of a number of historians. Um, In 2008, uh, uh, Michael and I worked together with some people of uh, Lancaster to put together a a symposium which brought together uh, a number of historians from across the country to uh, discuss James Buchanan and the politics of uh, the 1850s. And so uh, we took the essays from that symposium, uh, had the authors uh, revise them, edited them, and and, uh, put them in
0: this book. Did you find uh, historians in your group
2: who were Buchanan supporters or defenders? That's a good question. I, I, I think that I'd put it this way, that, the, that there were people, who, when they looked at Buchanan, did not fall into the trap uh, of simple scorn for him. Uh, they, they said, there's got to be something else here. And several of the scholars who wrote for this book uh, offered uh, perspectives on Buchanan that if they don't raise him out of the basement among presidents, they make us look at him in a, in a somewhat mm-hmm. more nuanced uh, way and, and notice that he did some things well as president. That mm-hmm. tends to get obscured when we focus on, you know, Dred Scott and Kansas and secession. And there's a, there's a variety of viewpoints
1: in the book regarding Buchanan um, with with, uh, with a number of, of the contributors uh, uh, Viewing him uh, not very sympathetically at all, and, and others not quite viewing him sympathetically yet nonetheless, uh, uh, as, as uh, Michael said, viewing him with, uh, with uh, some
2: nuance. What did he do well? Well, he seems to have uh, nipped the uh, the African slave trade uh, effectively. Uh, uh, it had been revived because slave trading was very profitable, uh, and you would not expect somebody who was a doe-face to actually enforce the law as vigorously as Buchanan did it, uh, but he did. Similarly, there were these um, adventurers who went into Latin America stirring up trouble and perhaps trying to uh, annex, if you will, a slave uh, society into connections with the United States. And these filibusters, as they were known, uh, were really uh, not Buchanan's friends. Uh, he, he made sure that uh, they were brought to justice. Uh, you wouldn't expect that about Buchanan, but uh, John Belalavec mm-hmm. and some other scholars have shown that he did a very good job on that front.
1: Another thing, uh, one of our contributors says that Buchanan did well was to remove Brigham Young as uh, governor from Utah Territory. Uh, Brigham Young had been uh, governor of of Utah for uh, for ten years since the uh, since the Mormon settlement of Utah in 1847, and uh, he had been uh, appointed and uh, and reappointed territorial governor. Uh, uh, Franklin Pierce had tried to remove uh, Brigham Young and uh, couldn 't find anybody to take the job uh, Br- uh, uh, James Buchanan did uh, remove uh, brigham Young uh, and uh, and uh, William McKinnon gives uh, Buchanan credit for removing uh, Young as Governor at the same time he says uh, that a lot of the problems that Buchanan had uh, throughout his presidency were exhibited uh... during the so-called uh, Utah Expedition or Utah War, as it's called, because a uh, number of people that uh, the Buchanan appointed uh, to carry out that, uh, that uh, mission of removing Young uh, were not very effective leaders. He also sent uh, about a third of the United States Army uh, to Utah to, uh, to remove Young, and it ended up being a very large, um, a v- very expensive uh, affair that uh, might have been managed better. He sent, he
0: sent a third of the army to Utah to remove Brigham Young as governor?
2: Yes, he yeah. did. Yes, he did. The, the army was for, was much smaller than maybe... we yeah, were talking 20, about an army of yeah. 7,500 people, yeah. uh, but they were it would be added onto by local volunteers, which was part of the complexity and perhaps the problem here. The th- one of the things about the Utah story, uh, to elaborate on John's point, is that uh, McKinnon's article, which we think is a very fine uh, contribution to this book, uh, really shows the value of of getting into uh, the sources and and looking closely at things, because it isn't one way. Just as John said, he, Buchanan deserves credit for removing Young, who who deserved to be removed. But Buchanan forgot to tell Young that he was being removed, and he forgot to do a number of other things, including he neglected to tell the armed forces mm-hmm. that he was sending that he had canceled the... the postal contracts out west, which means that he had cut off communications with them accidentally by canceling these contracts and the Army not being able to communicate back with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was an impetuous character, and that's one of the things that runs against the grain of what normally we think of when we think Mm -hmm. of Buchanan because the classic view of Buchanan was that he was timid and weak and vacillating. Uh, Whereas uh, I think our book tends to show from the collection of essays that he was a much more impetuous and stubborn person on most occasions than he was uh, weak and vacillating. He wasn't Mm -hmm. weak or vacillating in Utah. He wasn't weak or vacillating in Kansas. Uh, I think the moniker tends Mm -hmm. to stick more on the secession crisis but even there there are complexities.
1: Yeah, as, as uh, uh, one of our contributors says, uh, Buchanan at times uh, exhibited errant decisiveness. Uh, <laughs> it's a good it's a <laughs> yeah. good phrase. Yeah. yeah.
0: What was the Mountain Meadows massacre? Part of the Utah. Well, From, uh, there, uh, in the in the midst
1: of this uh, large expedition of the United States Army uh, on its way to Utah, and, and again, as as Michael said, the um, uh, Buchanan had not. Uh, really informed uh, Brigham Young that he was going to be relieved as as governor. So, so Mormons uh, thinking that this was another chapter in the by then long history of persecution were were prepared for uh, for the worst. And in a uh, what was in Utah rather um, uh, practically a warlike uh, situation, uh, a train of immigrants on its way from uh, Missouri and Arkansas. Uh, to uh, Southern California was, uh, was massacred uh, by settlers in, uh, in Southern Utah on uh, September 11th of all days, 1857, uh, with about 120, 123 uh, men, women, and, uh, and children, say, over uh, the age of four, all, all killed by, uh, by a band of uh, Mormon settlers.
0: Uh, it says in the uh, article by William McKinnon in your book, uh, so ruinous was Buchanan's financial management and so substantial was the Utah war's negative impact on the nation's financial condition that once the Civil War began, conspiracists argued that pr- uh, proto-Confederates in Buchanan's cabinet mm-hmm. had deliberately launched the Utah expedition to undermine the U.S. government's financial ability to combat mm-hmm. secession. Think they, they were thinking
2: that far in advance? Well, I, I think that that fits with most conspiracy mm-hmm. theorists, which is it's a little beyond the pale. Uh, Buchanan wasn't thinking along those lines, and neither no. were the so-called neo-Confederates or pro- proto-Confederates okay. in his in his cabinet. Uh, Who I think, were really Union men uh, in in the eighteen fifties, right? Yeah, I mean, did did Buchanan bungle finances? Yes, I think that yeah. would be a fair statement. But that's a far. Uh, stretch, I think, from suggesting that he was trying to yeah. cripple the government. We know enough about Buchanan's behavior during the secession crisis to know that uh, he did his job. He executed uh, the, the role of the president of the United mm-hmm. States according to, uh, you know, his oath. Uh, Jacob
1: Thompson, Secretary of the Interior, John Floyd, Secretary of Defense, Howell Cobb, Secretary of the Treasury, they all supported uh, the uh, the Confederacy. Uh, during, the, during the Civil War. But in the 1850s, they were, they were supportive of the Union. Uh, they were supportive of the Union as many people who later supported the Confederacy were, so long as they could rule it, to, to use the uh, 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 words of another historian. Um, and, uh, and when, uh, their, when their states seceded, when the Confederacy uh, was created, they, uh, they, they joined uh, with the Confederacy and, and for that matter did so, uh, went right from uh, Buchanan's uh, cabinet to
2: uh, supporting the
1: Confederacy
2: while he was
1: uh, still president.
2: I might add that this was really fortunate for the country. Uh, and you might say, well, why is there these, these cabinet members leaving? Good. Well, think about it. Buchanan wasn't a strong figure in terms of responding to secession. He was going to look for what the legalisms were. That wasn't strong leadership. But when he had to replace these people, he replaced them with people who were strong unionists, mm-hmm. uh, including Joseph Holt from Kentucky, including a, a, then, then on to Oregon, born in Kentucky, from Oregon, uh, and and uh, his closest uh, political associate Jeremiah Black, who had been his attorney general, shifted over to Secretary of State and suggested that uh, Buchanan then appoint his assistant Edwin Stanton to become mm-hmm. attorney general in his place. These three men, if you will, gave Buchanan his backbone during the secession mm-hmm. crisis. At one point in December, and this is really one of the things that, that I learned most from this book, it looked as though Buchanan might just say very little to nothing about all of the goings on in the southern states. And Black told him it it would be a mark against him and it would be a disgrace if he didn't write a, a, a state paper that made it clear that secession was unacceptable. And Buchanan gave Black the opportunity to write something. Black wrote a very strong statement. Buchanan edited it. And it was one of the better state papers that Buchanan wrote during that crisis.
0: South Carolina seceded while James Buchanan was president. Why did they pick that time to secede?
1: Well, they they uh, seceded uh, after Lincoln's uh, election, um, but before his before his inauguration, um, uh, the states of the Deep South uh, seceded uh, in large part because they were fearful of Lincoln as an anti-slavery president, and uh, historians have discussed quite a bit as to why they would, why they would be so afraid of Lincoln because Lincoln. Uh, uh, was a, a person who was supportive of slavery in the states where it existed, at least uh, during the early years of his presidency and during his uh, his political career uh, in the 1850s and before, supportive of slavery where it existed. But after 1854, Lincoln was determined to keep slavery out of the federal territories uh, located uh, located in the West. And, uh, and and so while Lincoln was, was quite clear on that uh, position, uh, Southern uh, people living in the southern states, whites living in the southern states, were fearful, I think, of two things. One was a recognition that they could no longer rule the Union. They, they could no longer ensure that a, a pro-slavery uh, politician would be president, uh, someone like James Buchanan, or or Franklin Pierce, or even Millard Fillmore, people who might have been from the North, but who would have been uh, supportive, uh, broadly speaking, of of Southern policy. But the other thing they feared with respect to Lincoln was the uh, executive uh, appointed powers, and that that Lincoln would be appointing people to serve as uh, customs uh, collectors and uh, postmasters who would be uh, loyal republicans and who would then build up the republican party in the south among non-slaveholding whites and circulate,
2: and circulate and, pamphlets and, yeah. and broadsides uh, attacking slavery uh, getting them into the hands of people the uh, pro-slavery faction didn't want them to get into mm-hmm.
0: When Buchanan was elected, uh, 1856, took office in Mm -hmm. 1857, what did he want to accomplish?
2: He had two uh, main uh, things he wanted Mm -hmm. to accomplish, and he stated them fairly uh, directly. Uh, The first one, which was... uh, public was that he wanted to quell agitation over the slavery issue uh, as much as possible and to keep the country at peace and 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 uh, to keep the country in a few well satisfied uh, as one country was that, that was important to him northern
0: agitation he wanted
2: to quell yes it was yes it was he, he
1: interpreted agitation largely as being something that was northern fueled
2: and and abolitionist yeah. inspired yeah. And the second thing he wanted to do, maybe he wasn't quite as direct uh, about this, but he was certainly clear about it enough in his correspondence, is he wanted to keep the Democratic Party as the mm-hmm. dominant party in the country. Now that was partly because he was a loyal Democrat, you know, had, had been an Andrew Jackson man going way back. Um, part of it was that he believed that the Democratic Party uh, was the only instrument for a, a united country and for a prosperous country. He didn't, he didn't think much of the opposition, and he certainly mm-hmm. didn't like the Republicans. He called them black Republicans, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and uh, I think those were his two fundamental goals, and he seems to have failed uh, uh, dismally on both. He, as uh, one of our, our
1: uh, essays uh, points out, the one by uh, Paul Finkelman, uh, Buchanan knew in advance what the dred Scott decision uh, was was going to be uh, knew how the court was was going to decide, uh, and then announced during his inaugural address that uh, he urged uh, Americans to uh, give uh, support to a uh, decision that would be forthcoming from the Supreme Court in a matter of days. And Buchanan knew what that uh, what that decision was. And Buchanan, throughout his presidency, was supportive of the Dred Scott decision. But the part of the Dred Scott decision that Buchanan was most supportive of was the idea that the federal, uh, is, it was the, is that uh, the people living within uh, territories uh, should have slavery protected there, that, that uh, slavery would be protected within territories, uh, that people uh, had a right to take slaves into federal territories, and that at the moment of statehood, uh, residents of a territory could decide for themselves whether they would want that prospective state to be uh, slave or free. Uh, Buchanan held to this position throughout his, uh, throughout his presidency, and he hoped that he might be able to uh, have Kansas come in as a as a, come into the Union as a state, and he thought if he could get Kansas into the Union as a state that would end uh, the uh the, uh, the the discord that was occurring within Kansas, uh, and uh, and he also hoped that that by ending the territorial issue, that it would that it would put an end to the Republican Party, put an end to the Republican Party would only strengthen a Democratic Party, and and then uh, he figured that uh, that the country would be able to uh, to continue on and, and of course uh, ruled by Democrats, and and his failure as a president was his not only his inability to carry those things out, but also his inability to see that
2: the plan he had worked out in his mind just wasn't going to work. Well, you know, if I might say so, Brian, one of the most intriguing things about Buchanan uh, in the context of what John has just said is... uh, where there's a disconnect between Buchanan and the realities on the ground in the country, particularly in the North, it's possible that Buchanan was simply locked into a mindset that might have been valid in the, in the 1840s, but that really was not applicable to the America of the 1850s and to the growing uh, outrage in the North about uh, this rule of ruin kind of notion among fire eaters. Uh, the, the growing moral component of the attack on slavery Uh, The the fact that more and more Northerners felt that uh, the South really had too much power and that it needed to be diminished. Uh, He was in England from 1853 to 1855. He wasn't really on top of public opinion. He was so sure of himself, Brian, he always was convinced that he knew best uh, that Mm -hmm. I don't think he studied evidence very, very well. He may have only been listening to one side of the story and again from his Mm -hmm. Southern advisors. So I think this plays into the comments that John's making.
1: And this, this is something that, that Buchanan exhibits throughout his uh, career. Uh, he's convinced after the Kansas, Kansas policy has proven to be a complete disaster, he continues to be not only convinced that, that his plan was right, he says so in his annual message of December 1858. Uh, after uh, the country has, has, uh, is in the midst of war, uh, Buchanan is, con- continues to be convinced uh, after he has left the White House uh, that he had done the right thing and, in essence, says as much in his uh, memoirs that he writes during the war but are published uh, after the war.
0: Gene Baker, who has written a book about James Buchanan, was on mm-hmm. this program for it, wrote a chapter in your book, and she says he was the most dangerous of chief executives, a stubborn, mistaken ideologue whose principles held no room for compromise. Let that stand. (laughs) How did he know what the decision was going to be in the Dred Scott
2: case? (laughs) Well, he had a friend and, uh, and several associates who he could communicate with. One of the interesting uh, Pennsylvania angles here, Brian, is that uh, two members of the of the Supreme Court were Dickinson College graduates, uh, one of them a Pennsylvanian named Robert Greer, the other a Marylander uh, named Roger Brooke Tawney, uh, and he had communications with them as well as with with Justice John Catron of Tennessee, and in each case, I think, from in retrospect, and certainly our our contributor Paul Finkelman mm-hmm. makes this argument, he stepped way over some invisible ethical line by not only inquiring as to what they were going to do, but actually encouraging them to go in a certain Mm -hmm. direction. And I think most of us would say that uh, that was not a good thing. Now, we have Mm -hmm. other examples in history of presidents interfering with the Supreme Court. Probably the the most obvious one is Lyndon Johnson's Mm -hmm. communications with Abe Fortas, but I'm sure that uh, Franklin Roosevelt had his his communications Mm -hmm. with members of the court as well. But what Buchanan did here his goal may have been laudable, which was maybe mm-hmm. we can get this whole issue behind us if the court rules. That was actually very unrealistic. But what he did ethically, I think, was, was not acceptable. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, John, you referred to Kansas. And in the, the book, uh, it says biographer Gene Baker has called Buchanan's Kansas policy one of the greatest of presidential blunders in American mm-hmm. history. What was the situation in Kansas? What was Buchanan's blunder?
1: Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a complicated story. Um, but uh, in 1854 uh, uh, congress passes a uh, bill the Kansas uh, Nebraska Act which uh, open which organizes uh, the the vast territory that's that's west of of uh, Missouri or west of Missouri and Iowa and uh, and east of the Rocky Mountains, the Kansas Nebraska Territory organizes into two territories, Kansas and uh, Nebraska, and does so on the basis of popular sovereignty. That is, allowing uh, the white residents of those territories to decide whether they would, uh, whether slavery would be permitted within that territory or not. Um, during the final two years of the Pierce administration, large numbers of settlers went into uh, Kansas uh, from the north and from the south uh, with an eye towards getting cheap land, uh, place to farm, uh, but, but the, the result was uh, a lot of uh, fighting uh, as to uh, Kansas's political future. Should Kansas be a territory that would uh, legalize slavery or not
0: literal uh, fighting. Lit, lit, literal
1: fighting uh, uh, in the, the Kansas War. There's there's probably 200 or so people who were killed in a uh, in a place with a population of between 10 and 20,000. And so it's it's uh, it's it's pretty serious stuff. Well, um, uh, when uh, Buchanan uh, becomes president, one of his objectives is to end the Kansas. Uh, troubles uh, by having Kansas be admitted into the Union as a state. Uh, Buchanan's view was that if Kansas comes in as a state, whether it comes in as a slave state or whether it comes in as a free state, the problem of Kansas will be solved. Uh, but uh, as it happens, uh, the uh, the politics in Kansas were, were were fraud ridden. Uh, large numbers of people from 1854, the, in, in the first uh, Kansas election, uh, to choose a territorial delegate to Congress, large numbers of residents from Missouri would come into Kansas, vote, and then go back to Missouri, and they would vote in favor of of, uh, of uh, a candidate and later candidates who would be uh, favorable towards slavery. Uh, so, so eventually, uh, settlers from the north, the free state settlers, uh, boycotted those elections altogether because they said the, the, the whole system is is corrupt. Well, eventually, those slave state settlers uh, organized a territorial government in Lecompton. And eventually, they they uh, put together a constitutional convention uh, that is uh, that applies for admission as a state. The problem is that the slave state settlers constitute a minority of the uh, of the settlers in Kansas, and and this is something that everybody knows. At the same time, those slave slave state settlers ha- essentially have. Um, are the ones who have who have uh, won the elections that were legally held, and Buchanan, being the legalist, uh, says in effect that the Lecompton Constitution uh, was one that had had uh, gone forth through the legitimate uh, mechanisms of of choosing uh, a, a prospective let state me, constitution. Let me interrupt
2: here and say simply that uh, I can put this very quickly: that Buchanan's legalism trumped any sense mm-hmm. of justice and fair play, if you just abstract what John is saying. And hence, he aroused public opinion in the North against the the doings in Kansas because it was so clearly mm-hmm. rigged and so clearly fraud ridden. And that's how you get this tremendous rift, the famous rift between mm-hmm. Stephen A. Douglas from Illinois and Buchanan, which Essentially, splits the Democratic Party down the middle and ensures, or close order. to ensures, that the Republican Party will win in 1860. Yeah, yeah. and
1: and that's that's a that's a fight that uh, that Buchanan, um, in essence, uh, made uh, made worse uh, by by his uh, by his holding, as as Michael said, to this strict legalism of having a uh, a prospective state constitution. Uh, be be sent to Congress, that is that's that's clearly fraudulent. It has strong support of of southern members of Congress uh, and uh, and weak support among uh, northern uh, Democrats, uh, many of whom don't want to support it. Uh, they They're with Stephen Douglas, also a Democrat who holds this idea of popular sovereignty, and and Douglass' view of popular sovereignty is that you have to let, you have to have a a clean and fair election in Kansas in order for popular sovereignty to work. And, and, And Buchanan never was a fan of popular sovereignty. He just wanted Kansas to become a state. And then he figured that once Kansas was a state, that the problems would then fix themselves.
0: How did it turn out?
2: Badly. Yeah. <laughs> not only uh, did uh, Kansas not get admitted to the union, because in the end, Buchanan with all the arm twisting and all the patronage, and some would say all the money that flowed into mm-hmm. the hands of certain congressmen, he couldn't, he couldn't get it through. Uh, in addition to that, in 1858, as kind of a backlash, uh, the Democratic Party suffered a pretty severe defeat mm-hmm. in the midterm elections. So Buchanan didn't help himself politically at all. And he made his party... Uh, more Southern
1: based uh, within Congress by weakening it so much within the North after the 1858 elections.
0: Uh, You mentioned a couple different people that he had interaction with. Stephen Douglas, what w- Stephen Douglas was a senator at the time yeah.
2: Stephen Douglas, of course, who uh, mm-hmm. was known as the Little Giant, uh, is most famous for being the uh, adversary of Abraham Lincoln in the, the Lincoln Douglas debates, and then for running that very courageous but futile race mm-hmm. for president in one thousand eight hundred and sixty. Uh, when the Democratic Party split. Douglas was a very fine uh, order, uh, a tough politician, Mm -hmm. tough uh, legislator, effective. He was the guy more than any single person, Brian, who was responsible for making the Compromise of 1850 happen, which solved an earlier kerfuffle between the North and the South. Douglas wanted to be president and he had Mm -hmm. run. He was uh, probably Buchanan's main uh, alternative in 1856 and he Mm -hmm. lost. And here's the thing, you know, about Douglas. Douglas campaigned once he lost mm-hmm. the nomination, he campaigned hard for Buchanan. He went around the country mm-hmm. speaking for Buchanan against the Republican Party. And yet when Buchanan becomes president, uh, he does everything he can to undercut Douglas by giving patronage to Douglas's enemies, uh, by saying nasty things about Douglas, and in effect uh, writing him out of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party.
1: And writing a thank you note to Samuel A. Douglas. Which I've Stephen never a. understood.
0: Which yeah. I have never <laughs> yeah, understood. <right. laughs> yeah. How did uh, the Buchanan <laughs> And ever defeat Stephen Douglas for the Democratic nomination?
2: He was, to use the, the lingo of the 1800s, he was the most available candidate. And what that translates into is Democrats viewed him as the most electable candidate. Mm-hmm. He had the best resume. He was not caught up, as Douglas mm-hmm. was, in the controversy over the Kansas-Nebraska bill, which John mm-hmm. alluded to a few minutes ago. Uh, Douglas gained adherence for what he had done in Kansas and Nebraska, but he'd also made enemies. Buchanan had fewer enemies in 1856 Mm -hmm. than any other potential candidate. He had the uh, experience. Uh, People didn't necessarily uh, feel affection for Buchanan, but they respected him, and it got him the nomination.
1: And, And an irony in 1856 is that uh, Stephen Douglas was one of the preferred candidates of the Southern uh, delegates to the Democratic National That's Convention, uh, and and Buchanan was was someone that that Southern delegates felt comfortable with, but that uh, Douglas's. Uh, strength was was among the southern delegates, as as it would happen within a few years, uh, Douglas, is base in the Democratic Party, shifted north and he became uh, anathema within the South. But in 1856, Douglas's strength was in the South. Buchanan, uh, among Democrats at least, had a, had a more of a of a national uh, following than uh, than Douglas did.
0: Uh, you, you said a little bit earlier that this book is based on a, a conference mm-hmm. that the two of you put together. And um, there are not a lot of books about James Buchanan, not a lot of historians mm-hmm. have focused on him. What do, do you each find appealing in him that would make <laughs> you want to well,
2: write about him? If you're going to use the word appealing, I think it, it's, it's less that we find him personally attractive mm-hmm. as a candidate or as a, as a president than that he has been, uh, I think, unduly neglected as president. I mean, he, we oscillate between scorn and vilification mm-hmm. on one side and neglect on the other. If you ask the average professor of history what they know about Buchanan, uh, they, they would be able to talk a little bit about Dred Scott, Kansas and, and secession. And then Buchanan's presidency goes into a black hole. And what what John and I thought we might do was to expand the the reach of Buchanan's studies a bit. Now, I can't claim we expanded it as far as we would like it to go, Mm -hmm. but I think we did expand it. And I think the the essay that you had us talk about earlier in the show on Utah is a a great example of that. Who knew anything about what he'd done in Utah? And Bill McKinnon wrote this masterful piece, which I think will be part of the conversation Mm -hmm. for a good long time. Uh, so I think that the appealing part of it for John and me w- was that we could say some new things and new ways about Buchanan by bringing in really smart people who had uh, uh, expertise in this field.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. John? Um, well, I, I don't find uh, Buchanan uh, at all appealing, uh, but he is... He, intriguing. Yeah, uh, uh, but, uh, but there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a, uh, I think, a fascination about, about anyone who can succeed in being... Uh, elected president of the United States. There's a there's a bit of skill and a, and a bit of luck uh, that's involved in it, and and certainly uh, Buchanan uh, is a person who who had a, had who had some good political skills. Uh, he he was elected to, as Michael said earlier, state legislature, U.S. House u s Senate uh, he served as a Secretary of State, served as uh, a Minister or ambassador both to Russia and to uh, to britain and and Polk even nominated him for the United States Supreme Court, which nomination he turned down, which also Enables us to see that other side of Buchanan, and that is that, that some people really didn't care much for him, including James K. Polk. He wanted to kick him upstairs into the Supreme Court to get him out of his out of his administration. Uh, so anyway, Buchanan is is himself a fascinating person, and uh, the politics of the 1850s are themselves, I think, of, of intrinsic fascination too. And, and Buchanan's uh, very much a part of, of uh, that politics.
0: When he was elected, did the Democratic Party control Congress?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And uh, did Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats think of themselves as being part of the same party?
1: Yes, absolutely. In 1856.
2: Yeah. Although increasingly you have Northern Democrats who are more and more, uh, Um, not with the program on the slavery issue. The slavery Mm -hmm. question begins to uh, filter into almost every conversation. And so there are certain Northern Democrats uh, who simply will not play ball with Southerners because Mm -hmm. they're defending their own turf and their own interests. Uh, and they're going to yeah. side of course with Douglas in in uh, the, the yeah. fights with Buchanan.
1: And and those those northern democrats have to respond by 1856 and thereafter to the growth of the republican party which is running on a on a strongly anti-slavery though not abolitionist platform. They want to they want to take strong positions against slavery. They're not calling for national legislation to end slavery in the states where it exists because Republicans by and large didn't think that the federal government had that, uh, had that authority. So some Northern Democrats are in 1856 a bit concerned about this matter. One of the things though that happens during Buchanan's presidency is that the Democratic Party, uh, which had been one party in 1856, was two parties by the end of Buchanan's presidency. And it's probably two parties uh, by, uh, by 1858. And uh, if we're to look at Buchanan's failure, I think in large part, it's, it's to look to the uh, breaking up of the Democratic Party, as, as Roy Nichols called it, the disruption of, of, uh, of democracy, of the democracy of the Democratic Party. And, uh, and Buchanan's uh, very much in the midst of all that. How was the
0: economy during his term?
2: Not good. In fact, uh, that's where the luck point that, that John mm-hmm. uh, offers is very relevant. Uh, the economy was robust uh, in the 1850s, and of course, we had this tremendous boom in railroad uh, building and, and, and economic development related to railroads, but uh, we had something called the Panic of 1857. Uh, and, and what's interesting about the, the, the Buchanan connection here is, of course, no president Uh, in and of himself, is is usually responsible for an economic uh, downturn of this magnitude. But Buchanan, because of his, quote, strict construction views, was completely opposed to any of the pump priming measures that the Republican Party favored. Uh, and as a result, uh, rivers and harbors bills, mm-hmm. for example, to help build our infrastructure, the equivalent of what we would say today if we were talking about highway reconstruction or, or, or fast rail. Uh, Buchanan vetoed everything that came down the pike from Congress in this regard, and uh, that may have satisfied Southern Democrats uh, who didn't like the idea of the federal government spending money on things because they didn't like the federal government having much power over anything, but it certainly aggravated not just Republicans but also Northern Democrats who wanted these projects for their Districts.
0: You all, he also had a a plan to annex Cuba. Something. Yeah. I mean, there are other things happened in his administration that didn't. It was his if fixed idea. If he
2: had a, if he had any fixed idea in politics aside from strict construction, it was probably annexing Cuba. He'd been talking about this for for years and it, years.
1: He, he was he was an expansionist, as as many uh, pre Civil War Democrats were. Uh, Northern Democrats, uh, many of them favored expansion for expansionist uh, sake. Uh, many Southern Democrats do with an eye, though, also towards expanding the area uh, that might uh, where slavery would be legal. And so there were a lot of Southern Democrats who favored the annexation of Cuba uh, because they liked the idea of bringing Cuba into the Union, making it a slave state and expanding uh, the area where, where slavery would be legal.
2: Who controlled Cuba at the time?
1: It was a Spanish colony.
2: And and Buchanan... made numerous overtures uh, to Spain, uh, dangling money in front of yeah. Spain for Cuba, and uh, at the time they were not interested.
1: He, he made an effort to secure Cuba uh, from Spain when he was the United States minister or ambassador to Britain, and then as putting money aside uh, during his presidency, as the uh, the essay by uh, John Belovic mentions, uh, to purchase Cuba from Spain. Spain made it clear that Cuba uh, was not for sale. Spain had an enormous uh, empire, Noel, Western Hemisphere. And uh, in the 1850s, uh, Cuba was, was really all that they had left, and they were determined uh, to keep it.
0: Spain no longer controlled Central and South America? No. They, they, th-
1: those, those areas had become uh, independent in the, uh, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic
0: Wars. One of your essays uh, says that uh, as far as Buchanan, his wider goals were wedded to an older, more nationalistic vision of manifest destiny and mission. He held a lonely vigil Vigil pursuing ideas whose time had come and gone. Mm-hmm. Was he like that in, in other things, where he held on to ideas whose time had come and gone?
1: Yeah, we have a, a number of our, our contributors do make that point, that, that uh, Buchanan's mind was kind of wedded uh, to the politics of the 1830s and of, of the 1840s. As as Michael Morrison said, uh, Buchanan never really came to realize uh, that the territorial issue in the 1850s had as much vitality and and uh, and and just carried as much uh, fervor as the bank war did of the 1830s, and that's something that, uh, that Buchanan never really understood,
2: and he could never again uh, relate to the moral dimension of opposition. Uh, to to slavery. He he didn't feel any great uh, moral fervor on the issue. In the abstract, he would always Mm -hmm. say slavery is an evil and it would be nice if we didn't have slavery. And indeed, one of the interesting things about your previous question and his interest in Mm -hmm. expanding to the South is that uh, he had this notion that somehow by expanding into Mexico or expanding Mm -hmm. into uh, Cuba, that uh, you would actually be benefiting the overall health of the country's economy and the overall health Mm -hmm. of the country. And and the the slavery issue was just not even part of the Mm -hmm. storyline. And I think that uh, in that sense, he really was uh, playing out of a playbook that was too old. Mm -hmm.
0: One of the authors refers to him as being morally tone deaf on the slavery issue. Mm-hmm.
2: We'd buy that. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: he, he, he is, uh, and, and he was. Um, at the same time, as, as, uh, as Michael mentioned, uh, you can point to a number of things during Buchanan's career uh, in which he, he took, he, did, he didn't always side with the South with respect to slavery. He was a politician from Pennsylvania, and though personally he was not one who got Uh, Very worked up about slavery. He recognized that some of his uh, constituents did. So, for instance, uh, when his uh, sister uh, married a man whose family was slaveholding, Buchanan undertook to, and this is in the 1830s, buy the slaves and and, uh, and ensure that they would uh, be set on the path toward freedom. Uh, Not because he thought slavery was wrong, but because he knew that this was not something that was good for him uh, politically.
2: On the, on the downside of the ledger, I mean, as president, he's issuing state papers in which he's actually referring to slavery as mild and beneficent mm-hmm. to, for the slaves. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think that that comported too well with the reality. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, you talked about uh, Wheatland, his home mm-hmm. near Lancaster or in Lancaster. Uh, if somebody goes there, what do they see?
2: Well, they're going to see what it was like for him to live in that house. It's a beautifully preserved uh, home. I, I believe that only uh, about four of the original 17 acres surrounding the house are still there as as they would have been in his day. I mean, he was growing things and so forth. And now they have they share. Uh, the property with LancasterHistory.org, the former Lancaster County Historical Society. But I'll tell you, it's a wonderful house uh, because you go into these homes and you see artifacts from Buchanan's mm-hmm. time. You know, th- you've got the portrait of Queen Victoria in there, which was given to him. His study is something that John and I would would uh, you know uh, die for because he's got a lovely study with all his his books and uh, and state papers in there where he did much of the work uh, uh, when he was not in Washington. Um, it's, uh, it's a nicely interpreted house. Uh, it's a place I encourage people to go. Mm
0: -hmm. Do, Do the people there take a sympathetic view of him?
2: That's a good question. I would say, yes, sympathetic, but, but let's also say, um, increasingly historically interesting and, and meritorious, which is to say they're interested in telling a true story about Buchanan. And I think this is a work in progress for Wheatland. Uh, I, I'm involved with some of what they're doing in terms of interpretation. I'm very pleased by the, the sheer integrity of what I hear coming out of uh, the folks who run Wheatland. They, they want to get it right. And and they don't want to say that Buchanan was just always misunderstood and he mm-hmm. was always the right guy. Uh, I think they want to tell the story sympathetically, but, but also fairly. Could-
0: anybody else who held the office of president in that era have done anything differently to to avoid the civil war? Or was it civil war inevitable? Um, well,
1: uh, I don't know that the civil war was inevitable until the civil war, uh, began. And once the civil war began, it wasn't inevitable that it would last, uh, four years until the war itself was over. Um, there were a lot of, uh, challenges that for anyone to, to have faced. Um, I think that Buchanan may have made uh, a bad situation worse. Uh, I don't know if, if things would have turned out differently if someone else had been president. But, the only, but, but in terms of, of the sheer politics of, of Buchanan's being president, the way to keep the Civil War from happening would have been to have kept the National Democratic Party intact. And if the National Democratic Party had remained intact, there's a good chance the Democrats might have won in 1860 if they had continued as a national party rather than running two candidates. To be sure, Lincoln won a majority of uh, the electoral votes. He also won a majority of the votes across uh, across the North. Uh, But if you look at those states where Lincoln won electoral votes, but he also won with 51% or less Uh, It's easy to see how the scenario in 1860 might have turned out different if Buchanan could have succeeded in keeping the National Democratic Party uh, intact. Not to mention uh, the electoral votes uh, that the Democrats lost in the South to John Bell, the Constitutional Union uh, candidate who who won all of his electoral votes in states with 48 percent of the vote or
2: less. But here's Uh, the thing. Here's the thing. I, mean, I agree with John's analysis, but the, the thing that is, is difficult to, to wrap your arms around is what if Buchanan had been uh, less maladroit and less stubborn mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and taken some different courses? For example, what if he mm-hmm. had rejected uh, what was clearly a fraudulent uh, effort to uh, bring uh, uh the state of Kansas into the union as a slave state. What if he'd rejected that? Well, then the, his Southern mm-hmm. friends would have rejected him on a dime and the democratic party still would have divided. Yeah. It would have taken a president with a lot more skill than anybody who was then on the scene had, I think, to mm-hmm. keep the country uh, moving in together in, in uh, a unified direction.
1: Yeah. Good point. If not, Buchanan who? Who? Um, uh, Buchanan looked like a good candidate in 1856 because he was so well experienced. He uh, had held all these offices, but none of them had been offices that had required him to exercise any kind of executive or managerial uh, authority. Um, I mean, at the same time, if Stephen Douglas, say, had had become the president in 1857 instead of Buchanan, if he had secured the nomination, I really don't know uh, how things would have turned out but but his his managerial experience is not such we really could have said that he would have been a better manager than buchanan same time lincoln had even less managerial experience than either of those uh... candidates and 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 he he rose to the occasion so it's hard to know who could have who could have done it better than buchanan but but he but the but the democratic party was weaker at the end of his administration than it was uh at the beginning of his administration and uh and and having presided over that breakup of the democratic party he does have to i think shoulder some responsibility for if it. it.
0: If the democratic party had stayed together mm-hmm. would it just have been staving off the inevitable? I mean were the two sections drifting inexorably
2: apart? I think that they were I think that c- cotton was so strong as, a, as an economic force in the country that Southerners, uh, particularly powerful Southerners, were not about to give up the mechanism for mm-hmm. getting that cotton to market and planting it and harvesting it and all the rest, and that meant slavery. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm more of the structural, uh, you know, interpretation, which I don't think it's just blundering politicians mm-hmm. that got us a civil war, Brian. I, I think it's a, it's clearly a combination of both. Uh, one of the comments in the, in the panel discussion that John moderated uh, says that uh, in response to this kind of a question, says that the the, uh, the 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 civil war probably was inevitable, but it was certainly helped mm-hmm. along by blundering politicians, and that's mm-hmm. more or less where I'd come down. Yeah. Um, if if uh, I- at the same
1: time uh, the uh, the states of the deep south were, I believe, uh, worried in 1860 and 1861 by uh, trends that they saw occurring in the states of the upper south. Uh, in uh, Delaware, which was uh, only a slave state in name. Maryland almost becoming just a slave state in name. Uh, concerns that, that Kentucky and Missouri uh, were not gonna be uh, forever wedded to slavery and perhaps Virginia as well. Uh, there was It's hard to know what would have happened if if uh, if the Civil War de- did not begin in 1861, and if if uh, you know what would have happened further on down the road, um, but uh, but at the same time looking at uh, 1860, 1861, uh, the, the, if there hadn't been the breakup of the Democratic Party, uh, it would have perhaps postponed it.
2: But but I guess we'll never know.
0: Uh, did Buchanan ever talk about running for a second term?
2: He actually. Uh, Said right off the bat on being inaugurated, he wasn't going to run for a second term. So his his goal mm-hmm. was to, as John said, hold the Democratic Party together. He failed at that. He never mm-hmm. really. I mean, he was he was uh, our one of our oldest presidents, uh, and, and uh, born in 1791, so when he takes office, he's mm. already 65 years of age, uh, he had come into office with National Hotels Disease, uh, uh, which he had gotten through bad water in uh, in, uh, the, the capital, in the Capitol, in the Willard Hotel. And so he actually left the White mm. House in somewhat better physical condition than he came in. National uh, Hotels Disease? Yeah, it's, uh, what would you call it, John? Uh... uh uh, bad, bad food, bad
1: water. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, gastrointestinal. It, it, gastrointestinal problems. I get let's, it. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, and so.
1: Now, at the same time, there is some evidence indicating that Buchanan wanted to be asked to run again. Uh, uh, whether he would have run is is another matter. But there are some indicators that that he would have wanted to at least have been asked. Even though he said in his inaugural address he was only going to serve one term. There's some evidence that in 1860 that that he would have liked to. But have, it was the equivalent
2: asked. of Woodrow Wilson wanting to have run in 1920 mm-hmm. when he was a broken man. Uh, Buchanan was tired. Uh, he was. He was. He was. His. His toolbox of interesting ideas had had been exhausted. Uh, he wasn't prepared to serve another term, even if he could have gotten the mm-hmm. nomination. Did uh, Buchanan have any kind of interaction with Abraham Lincoln? He sure did. Not not much, mm-hmm. and not much that mattered to Lincoln. But uh, he did stop. At one point, he stopped in the White House when Lincoln was president and asked for a book back that he had. And Mm -hmm. then he got the book back. Uh, I think that the important thing to remember about Buchanan and Lincoln, and it's it's not well known, is the degree to which Buchanan, uh, on the level of the union, was sympathetic to Lincoln was sympathetic to Lincoln during the secession crisis, was sympathetic to Lincoln's calling out the troops after Fort Sumter, was sympathetic to Lincoln's not willing to negotiate uh, with the South uh, over just come back in and we'll all be friends. Uh, he, where he parted company with Lincoln was on, a, on the Emancipation Proclamation and arming black troops. Uh, Buchanan was very conservative on those issues. But he was consistently a war democrat. And in that sense, and, and he also, let me just add, uh, when Lincoln was assassinated, he was deeply grieved. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the, uh, the, the perhaps the most famous exchange, uh, and the, the only one that we, we have aside from his correspondence were, were Buchanan's uh, writing uh, to Lincoln asking about, about, these, uh, about these books. Uh, is, is when they rode in a carriage uh, from the White House to the Capitol when Lincoln was, uh, was going to be taking his inaugural. And on that occasion, uh, Buchanan uh, revealed on, on more than one occasion uh, that he said to Lincoln, uh, if you're as happy to be taking this office as I am to be leaving it, uh, Buchanan said, you must be a very happy man.
0: How did he spend his post-White House years?
2: Well, he spent them mostly at Wheatland. Uh, He was engaged in what you would call domestic affairs. He was uh, uh, doing his business, uh, watching his investments, loaning money to people. Uh, Early on, he thought he was going to spend more time as a man about town. The first month or two that he's uh, home, uh, he's going to the tavern and hanging out with friends. Uh, unfortunately, uh, once uh, Sumter happened and the Civil War began, uh, he really wasn't being greeted very friendly and he decided to, to stay closer to home. Um, he was a, a person who liked entertaining very much. He would entertain former uh, associates in politics. He entertained his niece, Harriet Lane, who had, who had been essentially the first lady during his years in the White House. He entertained many nieces and nephews and friends of nieces and nephews. Uh, he, he needed to have company in his house and And those, those years that he was in retirement were happiest for him when Wheatland was filled with people. he loved Christmas, for example.
0: How did he view his presidency late in life
1: uh, he, he had no regrets and and made it clear he had he had no regrets uh, he was he was not a person who uh, seemed to have uh, uh, spent a lot of time worrying about things that had gone wrong. Uh, he had had no no regrets. But
2: at the same time, he was very ardent in vindicating himself. Mm -hmm. Not only did he use the word, you know, I am vindicated by events uh, many times uh, in in correspondence, but he spent a a chunk of the war assembling documents and putting together a third-person memoir, Mm -hmm. written in a third person, justifying everything he had ever done, particularly so relating to secession. Mm -hmm. And as John suggests, uh, if if he ever had any uh, reflection or self-criticism, Uh, We haven't found it. He saw himself as
1: a person steering between extremists of the north and extremists of the south, in which the extremists of the north were more to blame, that is the abolitionists. In in his uh, message to Congress in uh, December of 1860, as the secession crisis is underway, he blames the problems that the country is facing at the time on the abolitionists and does so in his, uh, in his memoir uh, as well.
0: It, there's uh, in the uh, introduction, I believe it is, which one of you two wrote, it says uh, his administration organ in the nation's capital, the Washington constitution printed editorials supporting secession. Jean Baker refers yes. to Buchanan's final months in office as a collaboration yeah. with the South, observing that his favoritism toward the South bordered on disloyalty.
2: Yeah, she mm-hmm. does say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think that there's a, Strong argument to be made that he was anything other than uh, a determined unionist, and that he was going to do whatever he could, up to the point of, of provoking a war. He was mm-hmm. going to do whatever he could to uh, to maintain the federal authority mm-hmm. where uh, our installations were in the South, being, for example, Fort Fort Sumter.
1: And, and in dis- uh, in November and December of eighteen sixty, Buchanan was of a mind that the way to s- preserve the union was to cave in and give give secessionists much of what they wanted as a way of of kind of ending the secessionist uh, crisis. And And this underwent a change. When, uh, when Lewis Cass resigned from his cabinet as Secretary of State in early December of 1860, in essence, uh, saying that Buchanan was caving in way too much. And as Michael said earlier, the latter uh, two months of Buchanan's administration was, was much more of a unionist one.
0: Unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been speaking with John Quist and Michael Berkner. They are the editors of this book, James Buchanan and the Coming of the Civil War. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.